I invite you to reflect for a moment. What do we think of when we hear the word confession? What comes to mind? What, what emotions do we associate with the word? How do we feel when we have to confess to someone or are confronted with our own wrongdoings or shortcomings? Imagine, though, if your problem was far worse than you'd ever even realized, and the person to whom you did seek to confess your wrongs, that they immediately forgave you, assured you of your worth to them, and promised to never bring it up again. I'd imagine your feelings at that moment would, would change in an instant. What emotions would well up then? Relief? Joy? Thankfulness? Here in Psalm 32, as we heard read for us, we see the blessedness of both confession and forgiveness. And particularly, we will come to see the why behind this Christian practice of confession. And why do we regularly do this at Gospel Life? To be sure, Psalm 32 will show us we don't confess to indulge in self-pity or grovel for approval for someone in authority, such as a dead end. And even more so, this must be clear. We do not confess our sins to earn forgiveness. Let me say that again. We do not confess to earn forgiveness. It does not merit favor from God. Rather, it's God's intended pathway. It's, it's a plea for help, for mercy. It's a humbling of the heart. It's an opening of the hands. And it's an admitting that we were wrong. It's an acknowledgement of our deep need, a need which can only come to be met from outside ourselves. And with such genuine requests, God delights to show mercy to the humble in heart. So what might it look like if the people of God regularly longed to confess their sin in order, order to experience a fresh the mercy of God? How would our relationships look if we were quick to confess our wrongdoings and seek forgiveness from one another? Our text this morning calls us to such living, the blessed life, through the grace-shaped practice of confessing our sins. We're continuing on in our series in the song and prayer book of the Psalms. And I'm excited for this series. The Psalms are a great treasure to the life of the church. And we have much to gain through engaging with these poetic prayers, through reading and praying and singing them, which Christians have done for millennia. They're indispensable to shaping our prayer lives. And the hope is that this morning, this psalm would shape us in that way as well. The Psalms give language which to speak back to God, no matter the circumstance, no matter 
our emotional state. Indeed, whatever you are feeling in your walk with the Lord right now, there is a psalm for that. Yet, Mark Ashton observes, as the psalms have disappeared from our church services, so other expressions of human emotion have welled up, some of which are much less healthy than the psalms, and almost all of which are less biblical. So may God use our time in the psalms together as a church, and may he show us today, through this psalm before us, the path to joy and the blessed life. I invite you to turn with me to the text of Psalm 32. If you have a Bible, either physical or digital, if it's a physical Bible, the Psalms will be right in the middle of your Bible as you open it up. And this morning we will make observations while walking through three main sections of this 32nd Psalm. Number one, the state or condition of the forgiven. We'll see in verses one to five. Number two, secondly, we'll see a call to be forgiven. Number six, in the third section, regards the life of those who are forgiven. Verse seven to the end of the psalm in verse 11. So look with me now, if you would, starting in verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The repetition here. First we notice how the first two lines begin identically. Blessed. And again, blessed in verse 2. What does this word mean? What is it getting at? How is it used? To be blessed, as used by the scriptures, is much greater than receiving material goods or vocational success or financial prosperity. To be blessed, in the sense used here, is far more desirable. And is this sense of indelible joy, a life of fullness, of abundance, true happiness. And as we will see in this psalm, this sort of blessedness is only found when we have our truly deepest need met. Namely, reconciliation with our Creator. Being in right relationship with God. And we've heard this before in Gospel Life, the idea of what it means to be blessed. We can recall even to this past Sunday, when Pete did a wonderful job opening up the Psalms, using Psalm number one, and it began the same way, didn't it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law he meditates day and night. The great, late Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he noticed a continuity between Psalm 1 and Psalm 32. In his wonderful commentary on the psalm, The Treasury of David, Spurgeon states, The first psalm describes the result of holy blessedness. The 32nd details the cause of it. 
The first picture is the tree in full growth. This depicts it in its first planting and watering. He who is the first psalm is a reader of God's book. Is here a suppliant or supplicant, a person who humbly pleads to someone in power? A suppliant at God's throne accepted and heard. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. He is now blessed and ever shall be blessed. Be he ever so poor, so sick, so sorrowful. He is blessed in every deed. Blessedness is not in this case ascribed to the one who has been a diligent law keeper. For then it would never come to us. But rather to a lawbreaker who by grace most rich and free has been forgiven. Did you hear that last line? Blessedness comes not as seen in this psalm from keeping the law, but rather by confession of the lawbreaker. How can this be? This is the good news of Jesus. We go to a multitude of passages in scriptures to see this, but let's briefly return again to words we heard last week, which reminded us that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for the lawbreaker. Romans 8.3 reads, For God, notice no one else, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The foundational ministry of the Spirit of God to you is to unite you to Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, condemnation. For those who are found in Christ, this is not so. There is only one man who has ever perfectly obeyed all righteous requirements and fulfilled the law. There's only one true Psalm 1 man, the man of righteousness, as we heard last week. And that man is Christ Jesus. He has fulfilled the law for all of those who are found in him. And how are we found in him? Through faith. And how are we united to Christ? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit in us. As our statement of faith professes regarding the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its guilt, he regenerates the sinners, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ. This is good news. News that instills joy the blessedness of resting in Christ's work and not 
in our own. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, the psalmist says, whose sin is covered. There's another repetition here to notice in these first two verses, Hebrew words for sin. In our English Bibles, they're translated transgression, sin, iniquity. David's repetition in these verses emphasizes the pervasiveness of sin, its seriousness, and its need to be dealt with. So three Hebrew words for sin are used here. Teacher and theologian Tim Mack is helpful for explaining each use. The first word rendered in English as sin simply means moral failure. Failed to live up to the moral standard. The word for iniquity depicts a right path and then a going astray from that path, whether intentional or not. The third word translated as transgressions means a willful violation. You know what is right, yet you choose to not do it. And so this, this covers the totality of sin. Sin, moral failure, a rebellion against God, our Creator. This is the problem of the Bible, and it is the problem for each and every one of us. So to fully understand the depth of David's claims in these first two verses, that happy and blessed are those who have their sins forgiven, we must know the weight of our guilt of sin and the offense that it is to God. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, said David. Many scholars consider Psalm 51 and, and this Psalm here, 32, as a response of David to his sin with Bathsheba, found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And for those who are with us for our Genesis series, who are keeping track at home, following, waiting to see who is the offspring of Eve who would eventually come to crush the head of the serpent, we now know that not even the highly touted prospect of David, he is not our Kai. But like David, do we consider our sin as an offense against God. Once we were made aware of that, when that happens, we can then begin to understand the depth of joy found in being forgiven. There's an illustration that Martin Lloyd-Jones used that imagines a man paying his bills for his friend. And the man comes over and tells him the news and the friend has no idea how to respond until he knows just how great a debt was paid. Was it a magazine subscription payment or debt owed to the IRS who were coming for his home 
As Lloyd-Jones says, until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down on the ground and kiss his feet. Such is the necessity of understanding our sin, the debt that we owe, so that we know how to respond to the one who has forgiven. And that debt has been paid for us Who God himself took care of is a debt we could never afford. And not only are we brought back to zero, so to speak, as Paul makes clear when he cites these verses from Psalm 32 in the New Testament, we are credited righteousness apart from any work that we ourselves have done. Paul explains to the one who is who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteous. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so the state of those who are forgiven by God and counted as righteous, in the richest sense of the word, are blessed. They joyfully bow down to kiss the feet of their Savior. So what is the first step towards forgiveness? Confession. And remember, confession is is simply telling the truth, acknowledging something. So you can confess positive things. For example, Romans 10.9 tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession of sin, then, is is a naming of our moral failures or unintentional or intentional going astray from the right path. It's an admitting that we were wrong. And in a way, repentance is intentional intrinsically related with confession. Repentance, then, is the turning away from our sin and turning towards the Lord to walk in his path. So while not often associated with happiness or joy, this psalm of David begins to show us the blessedness of confession. That God's word says we can be genuinely joyful, not not some flippant happiness while being fully known that those who are blessed are both fully known and fully loved and these next verses will show us this more in verse three david recounts his personal experience he gives testimony to the experience of trying to cover up his sin himself and listen to how david describes it For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Is this experience relatable to you? Have you experienced this? Maybe maybe after you've wronged someone or caused hurt. Well, for those who have, I I stand right there with you. In the telling of this particular account, 
There is a remarkable universality to this experience, this feeling of which he describes. We hear the phrase used, the guilt is weighing heavy. A study done by Princeton looked into this phenomenon. Princeton researcher Martin Day, along with Ramona Bobasil, discussed their findings. Is this theoretical perspective correct? Did people actually report a sensation of more weight? We found that recalling personal unethical acts led participants to report increased subjective body weights as compared to recalling ethical acts, unethical acts of others, or no recall. We also found that this increased sense of weight was related to participants' heightened feelings of guilt and not other negative emotions such as sadness or disgust. Although people sometimes associate importance, importance with heaviness, we found no evidence that importance could explain this finding. So David is he's on to something here. His language is precise in a, in a poetic way. Through David's example, we see this need for human beings in general to confess, to name, and to acknowledge wrongs. And in a way, every single person needs to be, to be cleaned out like the cleaning of a closet, like, like the sweeping out from under the rug or an unclogging of the pipes. And this through bringing the guilt to light. What happens when this cleaning of your inner, inner being by way of confession is neglected? A wasting away inside? A sense of, of heavy pressure weighing down, zapped strength? David is testifying that overlooked sin, unconfessed sin, withers us away. And to use John's words in the New Testament... If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So for all our sakes, thankfully, God speaks through David to show us a way forward. I acknowledged my sin to you, David goes on in verse 5. Don't miss this. Who, who does David confess to? He confesses to the one who must be confronted. And this is good news, as we'll see, to the one who is always ready to forgive the Lord. Verse 5 continues, I did not cover my iniquity. Do you remember back to, to Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, who were walking in the garden with God, sinned and, and disobeyed their Creator. And what was their response after sinning? Well, the text says that after eating the fruit, which was commanded them to not take, their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were both naked. Feeling they were exposed, they covered themselves with fig leaves. Now, don't get me wrong, I am all for wearing clothes and the benefits that they bring. The point of this matter is that this remains our instinctive response to sin. To cover. To cover ourselves. 
And after Adam and Eve covered themselves, the next thing they did was hide themselves from the Lord their God. The text says they hid from God among the trees of the garden. I love that visual. And again, I think we too just want to hide as a response of our sin. To both cover ourselves and to hide. This is our inheritance and so often our volitional response to our own sin. But David in Psalm 32 suggests another option for us. One will, which will actually deal with the problem of sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the godly pattern laid out for us. Rather than conceal, we are to confess. And when we genuinely confess to the Lord, aware of our need for a Savior, and trusting in the one whom God sent, the Lord is in the business of forgiving. And not only does he forgive, doesn't say the Lord considered his request or that he would at some point in the future, the Lord is ready now to forgive. This is the character of our Lord. The Lord forgives. The Lord our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Many will question, really? He'll, he'll forgive all sins? He'll forgive that sin? Even the worst of sins? Some of you might need encouragement this morning. Those, those of us who may be reluctant to confront the Lord with the heaviness of your sin, be, be assured of who our God is, His character. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgressions of the remnants of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy, Micah 7, 18. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you, Psalm 86, 5. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. Daniel 9, 9. And we'll hear more from David about the character of our God in the psalm this morning. Our God never changes. His word is always true. And again in John's words, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Rest. Rest today in the forgiveness found in the Lord. Go to him who has paid for your sins in full and believe that it is so. After testifying regarding his own experience, David goes on to give an exhortation to all. He makes a call for everyone to, conf to seek forgiveness. And now here is this psalm's exhortation to each one of us personally this morning. Hear these words from verse 6, now building on all that we have just heard through verse 5. Therefore, let everyone 
who is godly, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Because of the truth that blessed are those who are forgiven by God, therefore be exhorted to pray and in prayer confess to the Lord. This is for everyone. Everyone is to seek the Lord in prayer. Every sin is to be confessed in genuine prayer to God. So it's not, it's not easy. In fact, is is only an act enabled by God's grace. Even the ability to confess is a gift from God. It's not easy, to say the least, for us prideful beings to completely humble ourselves. It's not easy to admit that we were wrong. It's not easy to put into words how we failed. But confession through prayer is the path to forgiveness and the blessed life. So we've heard the call. We've heard the invitation and the exhortation to pray I invite you for a moment to even reflect on your prayer life recently. There's a gauge of sorts which can reveal where our hearts are at as we walk with the Lord. What are we asking of God? What, what requests are we making to God? What are we thanking God for? What are we confessing? See this morning as a fresh opportunity to trust and to delight in our heavenly father by going to him in prayer i don't i don't know where you're at this morning what's on your heart uh, but but i trust in the spirit of god to prompt you to bring to the heavenly father what you need to pray about what you need to confess to him We'll have some time to do this shortly. So take the opportunity to renew your joy in the Lord. Remind your heart of the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ as your Savior through confessing your sins to Him. For those who have never done this before, please know that there will not always be a time for you to go to the Lord in prayer in this way. Offer prayer, the text says, at a time when he may be found. Take the chance now. Don't, don't wait. Go to him when he may be found today. Seek the Lord's mercy. Paul in 2 Corinthians assures us, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. After this exhortation which David gives us, the rest of the psalm turns to the life of the forgiven. So we've heard the blessed state or condition of those who are forgiven. We've, we've received a call to be forgiven ourselves through going to the Lord in prayer. And now we will hear about the life of those who are forgiven, starting here in verse 7 through verse 11. And in this third final section, we'll, we'll move through these verses at a quicker tempo. So what it looks like, what does it look like to live as forgiven children of God? Here it is. 
God not only forgives you, but he protects those whom he forgives. Surely in the rush of great waters, the psalm reads, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You reserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The NIV translates that last phrase. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I love that our God is a singing God. So now rather, rather than wanting to hide from the Lord, for those who do confess and are forgiven by him, the Lord becomes their hiding place. Rather than a consuming fire for the forgiven, the Lord is a refuge. For those forgiven by God and surrounded by his songs of deliverance, God is also your instructor, your teacher, counselor, the Lord says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The forgiven are called to a life of holiness, upright living, enabled by the grace of God alone. What does the Lord teach us? How, how does the Lord's grace shape us. Well, Titus 2 tells us, for the grace of God is appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. After God's promise to forgive. In fitting psalm fashion, the psalm gives us an illustration. It's maybe an odd illustration for most of us, but, but here it is. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Let not... Our distance to mules and our everyday living allow us to miss this. Just as the mule is stubborn, without understanding, unable to receive instruction, requiring bit and bridle to be moved to the path it needs to go by force, may we be the complete opposite. May we be willing and joyfully may we respond to God and his instructions on the way to go down his path. This is no small point, but of great importance. Assign a marker of one forgiven by your holy God who is blessed, is one who desires to live in obedience to him and is enabled to do so by God's grace and grace alone. This too is a gift from God. That our hearts can be changed to desire not our own ways, but to desire the Lord's ways, the right path. When Christ calls us to himself, to follow 
in obedience? Do we hear him? Do we understand him? Do we hear the voice of the good shepherd and follow him? And do we do so willingly and joyfully? Or do we require a bit and a bridle which does not result in lasting change? Therefore, do not be like the mule or horse, but humble yourselves before God in prayer, acknowledging your deep need for him through confession. Then he too will be your guide. He will instruct you. He will lead you. He will protect you. He will provide every need for you. And now here in verse 10, we come to a summary of sorts of the lives of those who are forgiven. By God, contrasted by those who are not. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, as we've seen, manifests in prayer to him, in the confession of sin and confession of our need for him. And for all who put their trust in the Lord, you will be surrounded by the Lord's unfailing love. This love that does not fail is a love that surpasses our understanding. And by God's grace, we pray to experience and to live into this fullness of this love. To then be moved to love our neighbors. And finally, the psalm, the psalm concludes with a command. This is the proper response of those who have confessed and received forgiveness from God. The life of the forgiven is filled with gladness in the Lord, with rejoicing, with shouting or singing what joy they have received in the Lord. How can it be for those who trust in the Lord... You have reason to be glad, rejoice, and to sing, to be sure the blessed boast not in themselves, but they boast in the Lord, for by grace they have received mercy. And in its entirety, Psalm 32 shows the blessedness of confession, the blessedness of forgiveness. Remember as Spurgeon put it, blessed, blessedness is not in this case ascribed to the man who has been a diligent lawkeeper. For then it would never come to us, but rather to a lawbreaker who by grace most rich and free has been forgiven. Our identity, that those who follow Jesus, is one of a blood-bought forgiven. And consequently, a joy-filled people. And when we gather weekly as God's forgiven people, we confess to remind ourselves of that truth. To receive grace most rich and free, we respond to God together with rejoicing and gladness and singing. There might be some of us, if we're honest, 
that find ourselves doubting God's promise to forgive. Maybe our perceived worst or most shameful of sin weighs, weighs heavy right now. Making us just want, want to hide from God. I encourage you, consider the cross of Christ. Then there are others, maybe some here this morning, that don't, don't really believe that they need forgiveness. That they haven't sinned or sinned too badly. For those this morning that, that might be feeling this way, I implore you to examine yourselves and to consider the cross of Christ. When all is said and done, there's one thing I wish to make known, and that is Christ crucified. This side of the cross of Christ, we have the luxury to look back. Because of God's acts within history, in accordance with what was written in the scriptures, in sending his son, David's hope in assurance of the forgiveness of his sins, was found in the covenant promises of God, which, which pointed forward to, culminated, and was fulfilled in the life and the death and the resurrection of the one whom God sent, his very own son. But we now look backwards to God, to the Son of God, who came already in the flesh, in the blood, and walked this earth, and died on the cross, and was raised from the grave, and ascended into heaven, and who will one day return personally, bodily, and gloriously. And this is how we know that our sins are indeed forgiven for all who trust in the name of Jesus, and that the sacrifice he made on the cross is sufficient. We look to Christ crucified. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that Jesus' death on the cross was the once and for all sacrifice for sin accepted by God the Father. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you're Faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But since Christ Jesus, after dying on the cross, the death that we deserved for our sin, since Christ has been raised from the dead, therefore your faith is not futile. You are no longer a slave to sin. This is the sacrificial, lavish love that surrounds the one who puts their trust in the Lord alone. So stand in this and believe. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord's table, communion, is a meal for those who are forgiven by God. And so we, we are glad and we do rejoice and we boast in the Lord and together we enjoy the fellowship 
of the Lord at his table. If that's not you this morning, know simply that today you can pray to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and be welcomed to the table. For those who are in Christ, forgiven by God, let us now remind ourselves of the joy that is found in the Lord and only found in the Lord. Let's spend this next moment responding to the exhortation we've heard this morning. Is there anything that the Lord is leading you to confess so that you might be enraptured anew by the mercies of God? What does it look like for you to pray today as the Lord taught? Forgive me as I forgive others. Let us go to the Lord in silent prayer, examining ourselves as we approach the Lord's table.